0: Hello and welcome to the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, O Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, the Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Why hello there. On tonight's episode we are going to be looking at one of the early films to, from South Korea to finally get a budget compared with to compare with the Hollywood studios. As we check out uh Teigat uh The Brotherhood of War, uh, from two thousand and four. Uh, but before we check that out it's obviously time to ask what you've been watching and Stephen what has been holding your interest if anything
1: ok got three things although one of them I might just skip on by and I'm just triple checking now if I've really got three things or if I've got two things no I've got two things <laughs> don't know what happened there um, so um, as we record um, it's still spooky season although it won't be when this comes out and obviously we've done our halloween episode but i i did watch a, a spooky movie that had been sitting in my watch pile for a while um this is 2016 film called the housemaid it is not the housemaid from south korea either of the versions this is a this is a vietnamese film called the housemaid from 2016 um it is um how best to describe it so it's sort of set just at the end of french colonial rule so before just before the sort of korean war starts so it's what the 1950s or something like that young girl um from a poor area goes to this uh sort of plantation a rubber plantation run by a a french ex colonel or captain or something they could yeah i think they call him a captain so um so it's like a family plantation where historically all bad things have happened and the family in the past have been really mean to the workers and um but also he had a wife who killed their baby and then killed herself so it all brings up all this you know fairly uh, all, all those sort of uh, sort of ghosty tropes that we're used to. There's ghosts with black hair and, and long black hair and lots of water around everywhere and and screams and noises and jump scares. You know, we've seen these kind of films a million times, right, in, in Asian ghost cinema. And then it suddenly turns into a romance between the housemate and the, and the captain. Um, uh, some uh, some other character who's apparently his fiancee who had previously been unmentioned turns up and she's um she's played by somebody who used to be in the far show an irish actress can't remember her name but not not one of the famous ones she was like one of the sort of people that just made up the crowd scenes um and and if you don't know what the far show is then this is going to mean that's going to mean nothing to you and then suddenly it turns into a horror movie again Um, and to be honest with you I just thought up to this point I was like yeah it's fine I'm not quite sure it won all these awards and and some of those awards are a bit dubious anyway you know like the Iranian Film Festival best film and stuff like that but you know why was it released over here and then it pulls a twist and actually it's I'm not going to ruin it but it's a twist again that we've seen before none of this film is particularly original but it's really well made and Brings the scares and the twist just gives it just elevates it up a little bit. So, you know, it's it's not gonna change your life, it's not gonna make all oh, this is a real classic example of a um of an Asian horror movie, but it's it's absolutely fine, it's just not special. So that's the main thing I've watched. Um, the other thing is I did my first watch for a long, long time of one of my favourite films, um, which I've spoken about before in our best of thing, um, which is the film *Windstruck* by Korean director. I'm just trying to remember his name, um, Kwak Jae Young. Um, so Kwak Jae Young was this di- this old school Korean director who had a load of sort of films to his name, and then the Korean wave happened. Um, And we're going to talk about the Korean wave tonight when we talk about Brotherhood of War. It's very much in that. And he had this film called My Sassy Girl, which was a monster hit across Asia. It also got itself an American remake. Um, And then a couple of films later, he made this film called Windstruck um which is stars the same actress so it's um Junji Hyun who's like one of the biggest stars in South Korea um in terms of dramas and films and stuff like that so this is back 2004 and it's a kind of spiritual prequel it doesn't it's not really the same characters. It's not really connected to it, but there are some themes and a thing that happens at the end, which which, tie, which sort of ties it together with my sassy girl. Basically, it tells the story of this, um, uh, basically this this female police officer who's a bit headstrong. She's a bit I don't know sassy. Um, <laughs> she's a, um, so she's she's a very out there, very unlike sort of the demure south korean stereotype that we so often see um wacky hijinks happen in the first half of the film um where she meets this sort of school well he's not a sort of school teacher he is a school teacher um she arrests him accidentally to start with they have some adventures um and they fall in love and that's the first half of the film uh, all, all the while the film is wildly changing um genres and 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 uh sort of styles and just just general sensibility changes from wacky romantic comedy to to shoot out please shoot out and to later on it becomes an action thriller and then it becomes it tells some little fairy tales in the middle it's i mean this is one of the things that quack does he just loves to mess around with with styles within a film you know we've we've seen it several times before where a film sort of changes what it is halfway through but this sort of does it all the time however in the second half of the film um the 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 romantic male lead um dies um actually he, he dies she saves him and then he dies again one scene later and then we then have the rest of the movie is this on this whole idea of of when people die, there's got that 49 days mourning period where their sort of ghost is still around and you've got to help them cross to the other side. So basically we have this woman who's really headstrong, really maybe even a feminist icon because she's kicking kicking giving it to the man as a as a policewoman. She becomes all very weepy and needy and she's trying to kill herself and but it actually becomes in the end it becomes utterly charming i'm not going to ruin the whole thing for you but it's a film i really adore and but i haven't actually seen it for about 10 years so it was really nice to catch up and it it's still as ridiculous as it was before but if you want a film that's the poster child for fucking around with genres that's your one what about yourself mate
0: well, I've got a couple of bits and pieces. Uh, the first one is The Green Slime from 1968. Uh, this one is directed by the director of Kinji Kinji Fukasaku. Um, this one's interesting really because it's a Japanese a film that was uh, both produced in Japan. A uh, direct, Japanese director attached to it with an all-English cast. Um Okay. <laughs> it's a real interesting uh <laughs> approach to it. Uh basically the only two noteworthy actors in it is Robert Horton and uh Luciana P- uh, Peluzzi uh Who you probably know if you watch a lot of the Beach movies, she's in a bunch of those. Um she's also in a, quite a few of the like uh Polizzi movies like Italian Connection. She's also in Thunderball as well. Okay. Yeah. Which yeah. Is probably. I'm guessing, which is probably where I should have led it with my life. <laughs> <laughs> you start from the top and go down. Yes, instead of like just shooting out in the field somewhere.
1: So this is a this is a sort of a collab between Metro Goldwyn Mayer and Toei,
0: right? This is yeah, this is another of those wonderful. Um, There's wonderful collaborations but we're not too sure how it came about but it did um (laughs) if i'm to believe john landis's um notes on the film because he's done a trailers from hell on this they basically went around uh like local army bases and sort of like embassies trying to find english-speaking um actors of varying degrees of talent to be in this movie Uh, The film itself uh, sees a giant asteroid heading to Earth and a bunch of astronauts uh, astronauts are sent to blow it up, very Armageddon-esque. And then, unknowingly, one of them comes back and he's got a bit of green slime on him, which then mutates into a bunch of one-eyed tentacle monsters that feed off electricity and are soon taking over the space station with uh, people being zapped left, right and centre. Um, I really wanted to like this one more. It's got a lot of things I like, you know, bug-eye monsters and a real sort of B-movie charm to it. But at the same time, it's kind of tedious. So, while there's some interesting things happening and there's that wonderful sort of, like, retro style to the proceedings, and suddenly it's a director that we're both fans of, it's safe to say, um, it just did absolutely nothing for, for myself, even though it has a really cool opening song.
1: I will say so. I just looked it up on on Wikipedia, and they've got like what I'm guessing is the film poster. Yes, I, I fucking love the fi- film poster. Looks like a 1950s sort of sci fi novel, and it's giving me sort of you, you remember in Giants and Toys the yes. whole, the Japanese sort of view of sci fi with the big bubble helmet, but the tight fitting skin, and 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 the, and the monster looks like something from a HP Lovecraft rather than a space thing. But I love the cover. Yeah, it looks like a it looks like a sort of a cheap sci-fi novel from, from that period
0: yeah it's much like the blob I want, it's like the only other comparison I have where it draws you this great poster, this awesome opening song and then it's just tedious as all hell <laughs> so yeah I can't really recommend that one, it's uh it's a middle-of-the-road entry for myself. Uh, much better, though, was Chore from 2009, which is oh, a... Oh, fucking
1: hell, I love Chore. Carry on.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: I'm so glad you thought it was better than... <laughs> <laughs> this
0: is a giant pig movie. Uh, so think Razorback, but this one's set in South Korea. Uh, directed by Shin, uh, Shin Jong-won. Um, it's a black comedy, which I really didn't expect. So this one sees a giant boar that's uh, going on the rampage and the locals uh, have to sort of team up to stop it. It's the sort of long and short of of this one. But yeah, I'm glad that you like this one as well, Stephen, because I really enjoyed this one, even though it is kind of long. It's up there in the two-hour range.
1: Yeah, as, as, as a lot of South Korean films are, unfortunately. Well, not unfortunately. Just, you know, you just have to know... Yeah, like Windstruck, which I was talking... All the films from... In fact, tonight's film as well is two and a half hours long. Um, but, yeah, it's... Um, I, I must have seen this back in, like, 2010 from <clears throat> yellowcinema.com. And um, I fucking love this. And it is um, it is a film. Actually, I was thinking of bringing to the show at some point. But it doesn't matter. You've seen it now. I, I love it. I, maybe you don't love it quite as much as I do. But um, I, I it's just funny and ridiculous and yeah and and it's genuinely sort of slapsticky funny as well you don't you know it's not there's not a lot of you, you know like when we watch a Stephen Chow film or something we do feel that we're not getting all the jokes I don't really have that problem with Shaw sure, but now I want to go and see it again <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it features this uh, detective who's uh, sent to the a town that boasts itself as being a crime-free village um after he puts on his transfer papers anywhere so they do pretty much send him anywhere which happens to be this small town which is under siege from this giant boar at the same time we've got a big game hunter a elderly experienced hunter um, and a bunch of oddballs that uh, all sort of team up to hunt down this this giant boar at the same time we've got a witchy woman um, who's got a sort of adoptive relationship with a young boy in the town and it's a town full of these colorful characters um, who live various stages of sort of backward sort of ways but at the same time the actual when it goes it's um Got a same similar sort of setup to Jaws in many ways. This town is very much like Amity. We got characters here that we can identify with as being characters within that group in Jaws, and certainly with the second half, it goes from being the town under siege to this adventure movie as they go in hunt of this giant boar um the cgi hasn't dated particularly well but seeing how the asylum has been lowering the bar for many years now it's still very passable and there's certain scenes it looks good and there's certain animatronic shots for close-ups so it's more so it's uh while the cgi is obvious it's certainly not gonna be the worst cgi that you've seen but yeah i was surprised how how funny this one actually was it's kind of like a black comedy than a straight-up horror movie was
1: it is it on a streaming service then? Or? No,
0: I got this one I have uh, had the disc. I've had it a while oh. now. Um I'm trying to remember because I think this was this was in the wake of the host. Um
1: Yeah, so it's I think it's yeah, it, it's in or around. I didn't know it got a, I didn't know it got a release over here. It's um I I have I have I think a Korean DVD of it um somewhere, but oh, such a cool film
0: to see if I can find the uh, but yeah if you want to watch this you can find it on, on Amazon. Um it's also available to buy. You can get it pretty much anywhere if you know a good second hand uh a second hand sort of D V D store like C E X then uh you can probably pick up a copy debt sheet there as well so but, uh, yeah, that would be my big recommendation of, uh, of this most recent block. I mean, I did obviously watch, as well, uh, Legend of the Overfiend 3, um, which I didn't realise was its uh, its own series. It's a uh, number four part of uh, Nonsense set 20 years after the original one. So, at least, unlike uh, Legend of the Overfiend 2, this one's got some sort of follow-up to it. But it's just failed to sort of grab me and sort of focuses way too much on this sort of sleazy side and when meaning that you spend a lot of time reaching for the fast forward button to fast forward it and when you do get those brief moments of story it actually feels that it's got something interesting to say it's just a shame that it sort of gets drowned out in all the sex and parts and uh, rather than focusing on building this actually kind of interesting story that it's trying to tell so but um Steven, you're lucky in the fact that you've managed to avoid watching uh Legend of the Overfiend as to date, so
1: Yeah, you haven't got me into the whole hentai thing yet.
0: I'm not sure we class it as hentai because it's not like it's LA Blue Girl or one of those ones. I'd say it's more like Ninja Scroll in the fact that it contains obviously elements of uh sexual violence and extreme gore in there.
1: I, I guess it yeah. I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I put it in that world of films I don't need in my life but obviously if one day you were to choose it as the movie to discuss I'd I'd, I'd happily watch
0: it I would probably have you watch, if I was to choose any I would just do the first one because Yeah, the original Legend of uh, the Orphan is the only one so far that's been worth watching Legend of the Fiend 2, Legend of the Demon Wound was, was good but it felt more like a um oh what's the word a, a sort of um it's kind of like a TV movie. It felt like a little sub story in there rather than its own thing. But gotcha. uh, yeah. Return of the Overfiend. Uh, it's. Um, yeah. It, it just did nothing for myself. And uh, I've still got another one of these to go. Oh, God. But, uh, yeah, if you. <laughs>
1: we just heard a man's soul snapping off. I just. <laughs> as I said, I keep
0: putting these things off. and <coughs> You know how you, like, watch. You think, oh, well, I've I've watched the first three volumes of this. I mean, you might as well go and watch Inferno Road, and um, and then there's obviously a final chapter which is five, which they never even finished and still put out. So, I I don't know. Maybe the next to Halloween it rolls around up. I may um, get around to watching Inferno Road, but I'm not. I was not as enamoured uh, with it as I was by the first two, which left a an impression in a fairly positive way, so... Even though you could never explain to anyone why you like that movie. <laughs> Not without. The the movie <laughs> where where the schoolboy turns into the ginormous demon with flaming penis tentacles that burst up through a hospital at one point. <sighs> but still, that's what I've been watching. Um...
1: I, I've remembered the third film that I wanted to talk about. I just forgot to open up the tab on my browser and I was going, oh no, what is it? So, are you ready for another film that Stephen's been watching? Sure, it's probably a bit and, more classic,
0: I guess.
1: Uh, it didn't, well, yeah. And and also there's another incredibly embarrassment moment, embarrassing moment I need to share with, with you and the audience as well. Um, so, I've just written an article for Eastern Kicks um, to support... Um, I think it's a new Criterion DVD. It's also going to be shown in London on a, a you know, big, nice new 4K restoration um, somewhere in late November, I think. So you know, I'm just, I'm just a shill. But um, I got to watch for the first time. It's one of my cinema shames. Um, Anhui's Boat People, which is from I want to say 1982, 1983, I should know, I've just written about it but I don't have it to hand. Um, So Anne Hui is a director we haven't talked about but she's probably the preeminent female Hong Kong film director. She's very much part of that new wave which includes people like Choi Hark, (coughs) that sort of revolutionised Hong Kong filmmaking. Um, It's also a very early appearance by Andy Lau who will know from about a million films, but most people are knowing from *Infernal Affairs*. I imagine um, it basically tells the story of a. So it's set back in sort of just sort of three years after the end of the Vietnam War. So the the, the Communist Party have won that war. Sorry, America, and sorry, South Vietnam as well. And um, it, there's a there's a Japanese sort of photojournalist there who sort of is, has documented that sort of end of the war and how it was um taken in a small town um in uh in in vietnam three years later he's invited back and with his government escorts and i think you know where this is going when i start saying that you know he's 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 shown this sort of area in this place called these new economic territories and it's, it's an orphanage and the kids are just delightful and they're happy and they're well fed and they charm him and he thinks it's lovely um but a bit later, he's um, he witnesses some police brutality against what the sort of a dissident in in the main town, and he tries to photograph it, and he gets beaten up by the local police force. So almost as an apology, um, the sort of his government minders say, "Oh no, we're really sorry that happened," you know, because obviously they're trying to show Vietnam in a, in a really positive light. Um, they let him go off on his own. Um, he forms a friendship with a young 14-year-old um, girl, her mother. She's ended up going into prostitution. She's got two brothers. One of the brothers is half Korean. I mean, this this family is meant to be representative of, of the Vietnamese people. Um, from there, it gets bleaker and bleaker and bleaker. We find the kids... Um, loot the uh, valuables from the fields where they call it the chicken farm, where all the distance have been shot and they're just sort of laid out and they're picking, picking the valuables from dead bodies. Um, one child gets blown up because he picks up a hand grenade and <laughs> it's live. Um, Andy Lau's character is, has, has come from the new economic territories and then goes back again because he commits a crime. Um, and he one day they're out clearing landmines oh are we all right yeah they, they, they get forced to clear landmines and one of his mates gets blown up and uh and then he tries to escape on a boat and that doesn't go well it's fucking bleak mate <laughs> but it is a wonderful movie for all the same reasons um i won't go into it too much here but I have, you know, when the reviews posted up on Eastern Kicks, you can go and see it because there are some issues about whether it's a propaganda piece against Vietnam because it was filmed in mainland China, which was it was the first film sort of post-revolution, post-Hong Kong film to be made in Hainan. It was on Hainan Island, but that's still technically part of mainland China, setting in for, um, stepping in for Vietnam. Um, the Japanese character is played by a Hong Konger. Um, the two main Vietnamese people you meet are played by Hong Kongers. There's also a bit of that. Um, it's not really appropriation, but you know, like if you saw a film about French people and it was all played by plummy English people, you'd say oh, that's a bit that's a bit weird. But it is, you know, it's a classic. It's a, it's really well made. The restoration is lovely um and for me it was it was like one of those cinema shame things um and we haven't we just haven't talked about Anhui, have we on this on this show um and she is somebody we should probably talk about whether it's boat people or something more recently like a simple life which have you know she's she's won a lot of awards um and she's got a certain style about her work and themes and things like that um but i'm not particularly an expert on her myself, so it's something, you know, it was really nice to see this film, I've got issues with it, but it was clearly a good film, so I can't believe I forgot about that, because that was most of my week, trying to find time to write the review. Um, So that's that, have have you seen Boat People? No, I have not. But you've probably heard of it, or you've certainly heard of Anhui, I imagine.
0: I've heard of Anhui, yes, but uh, as I said, I've not... uh... There's
1: a really good um, sort of ghosty romance called Visible Secret, she did, which I think stars Ethan Chan, who was in Dream Home. Um, that might come to play one day. The other thing is, you remember I bought that Mothra soundtrack from Waxwork Records on yes, your I recommendation, did. even though I don't own a record player. Well, I've just done the same thing from the same place for the House Who soundtrack.
0: Is it, why? <laughs> like you're buying stuff that you
1: can't listen to. It's well, be... I... I can, I can listen to it, but I, you know, I have to go and visit my daughter to use her record player, so <laughs> and I've sad. also got the Hausu soundtrack in another way, anyway. But it was just one of these lovely, lovely cover, lovely discs, and I wanted to keep my Mothra soundtrack. Have a friend,
0: but it needs <laughs> to stop. The Hausu soundtrack, which is <laughs> an interesting choice. I well, did, I just done by mean... the same
1: people that um, did Monkey Magic, mate. So.
0: I just can't see like the Hazu soundtrack as being like something that you're really gonna sort of have on, especially because a lot of it's sort of like that jangling, almost jazz fusion <laughs> in places. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I I I do quite like it, but it was it was yeah. I'm an idiot, and I I need to confess to you and our audience that I am easily led. Um, and I've ordered it again for America. I didn't even get those. There's, there's been a special version that was released over here. And I could have got a lot more easily, but. Never mind. Photos on Facebook when it turns out.
0: I did. So. Uh,
1: well, there's an, there's an Arrow film sale on as well, which I've done very well to avoid. But. All those box sets that I
0: bought over the years are all like
1: half price.
0: Well, I just saw <coughs> the the release schedule for Arrow Player, mm. and I think it's like the twenty second that we get the next lot of Shaw movies going on. Yes, there. so uh,
1: but that 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 that, that Shaw Scope Volume Two will go onto
0: the Arrow Player, don't they? Exactly. So it's it kind of makes up because October for us Brits was kind of a little lackluster. Uh We obviously got um, Creep and Severance, which is good as well as the whole. But the our friends over in the states got like Evil Dead Trap, which we didn't get, so that kind of sucks. Ah, oh, but
1: that's that's because it's being done by 88 Films.
0: I know, so, and it's a dis. This is, but then yeah. if you try and put logic into what Arrow player show, yeah, in,
1: in, indeed, they're not. Yeah, they're not linked up with 88 Films yet, are they? I imagine it's only a matter of time.
0: I imagine so. I mean, they they seem to be have a number of uh, like they've got. Arrangement with like fair window films, mm. so they're showing and terracotta as yes, well. Yes, exactly. So, there's a number of com- labels whose films they show, and then there's just some really random stuff that filters through onto there. So, to try and apply logic to how the arrow player works is sort of like a frivolous task. It's best just to sort of go with the flow and just enjoy uh, the service that it is. <clears throat> the problem is, is
1: that lots of these movies, especially the Asian movies that we love, have got really complicated rights issues. Um, with you know, because they get sold at festivals, don't they? But they only get sold to like five countries, and someone else buys it up later. And I think that's the problem with you know, that, that's why Evil Dead Trap is coming out from eighty-eight films and isn't, but really does belong. I can't believe it's not on the Arrow player, you know. But at the same time, I do want some diversity. I don't want Arrow to own everything, um, because I guess they don't own Eureka or Master Cinema yet. But we're
0: sort of we're getting to that stage now where it's sort of like there's a number of other levels. As you said, you've got 88 films, you've got uh, Indicator, and the titles that are getting sort of picked up. We're getting into that stage now where like uh, we saw with like uh, Hong Kong Legends and uh, certainly with like Tarzan where they're like no longer the only game in town so we're seeing, um, seeing some backlash when they were like announcing the releases for June, for January that it's sort of like oh they, you know they're going downhill and 88 films are putting out better titles and I'm thinking well you know <laughs> at the end of the day you can only put out what you can get the rights to so and i don't know whether it's a good thing to have more labels out there putting out more titles or just have like a few labels putting out um titles i'm never sure which is the best I way think, i think i don't i don't mind
1: there being you know arrow are seem to be quite a big player yeah that they they seem to swallow up and it's not just Asian films is it they they swallow up a lot of Jallo. they swallow up a lot of cult Cinema—they have weird things like they've got the rights to Robocop over here and um, a couple of other films of that ilk. Um, and then you've got like the boutique labels like Eighty Eight Films, which are sometimes quite random in what they put out. I think, but um, it's true. And I also but, but the my only problem is is that when, like, I don't know, like, there's a maybe there's a five film series, and I'm not sure if this has happened yet, but I've got a feeling it has. Or, or certainly in a Shaw Brothers sense that ninety percent of the movies come out on Arrow and then ten percent come out on eighty-eight films and you just think, well, I, I want I want parts four and five or that obscure one there. I wish it was matched what it was like on yeah. my, in my on my on my shelf or the you know the extras had some kind of resonance with each other. But I, I don't really have well, eighty-eight films. Do lovely sets. I think they're a bit overpriced. But um, that was
0: going to be my next point. Yeah, really, it's just that when you're looking at some of these levels that are putting them out, and it's like twenty three quid for like um, for Blu-ray or DVD, and it just feels like we're, that the physical media market is pricing people out and pushing us to go the digital route.
1: And I think even more so when you look at ultra high definition, um, which you, I mean, there's a there's a couple of... Them. I mean, not nothing in the, there's nothing really in the Asian world for us, certainly over here, to watch. But I see the prices of shit movies that are like 20, 25 quid minimum for really nothing on there, just so you can play it on your PS5 or whatever, is... Why would you do that? Because these movies are all going to be available on streaming services. Um, obviously, some of the more random stuff that we like cult films foreign films stuff like that okay sometimes you might have to pay a premium but these things are yeah the price of physical media is getting farcical and i've got to be honest with you, mate i can't often tell the difference between a dvd and a blu-ray let alone an ultra high definition maybe i'm old
0: it does reach that point where it becomes uh you can't really tell the difference doesn't it so
1: and i wouldn't mind if the extra features Covered up, but how many times do we watch the extra features it, on ninety nine percent of the physical media we own? I know occasionally we will. I know occasionally, and um, let's talk about eighty eight films. Who did Erotic Ghost Story with the best extra feature I've ever seen? But oh yeah, it's it's, sure. it's, it's it's rare, very rare. And um, yeah, I, I mean, it's almost as if they would rather you streamed it.
0: So. So, yeah, that's our dilemma. Once again, the distribution rights. It would be nice if there wasn't such a divide between the English language countries. So the fact that we have America as one market and the UK and Europe as another market, which means that we often see things such as, like, as I said, on Naira Player, if you're in the States, you could get Dead Trap, but the rights aren't here for us here in the UK. And it's sort of like... It's it's film different distribution rights are the bane of the movie collector that's um it does seem to be a problem that's becoming all the more present it feels like so
1: i mean the only that's well, not the only good thing but one of the good things about obviously uhds is that there's no region coding as there is in Uh, DVDs and especially Blu-rays I find the region coding a fucking ball like I know there's only three regions well, and and region three but the way the world is split up is a fucking pain (laughs) I just don't know what they're trying to do I just don't know what they're trying to protect us from because film releases these days although occasionally there is a a month or so between you know, re- where things are released. I just never really understood what they're trying to protect. Well, I know what they're trying to protect themselves from. It's film weights again is the big thing. But uh, yeah, I'm quite glad. The one good thing about UHD is that it's region free, but you need a player and a TV and the cost of the discs themselves is almost prohibitive. Unless you accidentally buy one in CEX like I did, thinking it was the blue ray of something. <laughs> I haven't been able to play it until fairly recently anyway rant over
0: yeah on that note it's time to get on to our feature presentation uh, which tonight is take out ye the brotherhood of war <laughs> Tonight uh, we are looking at a film which was originally released over here as Brotherhood but uh, now goes by the title of Taegukgi, Gi, uh, The Brotherhood War, released in 2004. Uh, this is a war movie um, focusing on the Korean War which is probably one of the more overlooked wars especially when it comes to the cinematic landscape. There's plenty of films which focus on the Second World War and certainly the Vietnam War but we have these conflicts which are rather underrepresented and certainly the Korean War would certainly be one of those. Uh,
1: MASH is the only film I can think of in the West that's really set in the korean war and then it obviously had a tv show after it but he but you're right no you're right i I think there are but it's not got the resonance of you know vietnam war movies or or second world war movies or even first world war War, world war stories so yeah and but there's a lot of korean films are obsessed by it obviously
0: (laughs) yeah certainly so i mean you now you reminded me of MASH it's sort of like the theme tune Suicide is Painless which used to be piped into the call center I worked at which is the most soul crushing song you can hear on your shift
1: Yeah, <laughs> do you think that was deliberate because
0: <laughs> suicide is painless it's like, was... oh, you just sit, you sit there like um, that Simpsons episode where Marge works at the power plant and you've got the guy like polishing the rifle and it's sort of like I am the angel of death <laughs> the time of purification is near and the person next to him is just like drinking. But uh, the film itself is uh, directed by Kang ji uh, ku who uh, also gave us uh, Shiri, which is whose success led to him being able to direct this film and getting a substantially larger budget than films were being made for in South Korea at the time and a budget really comparable to what filmmakers in Hollywood would be Working with, even though it's sort of like a fraction of that uh, that price. I mean, it was the budget for this film was about twelve point eight million dollars, which, in terms of Korean cinema, was a lot of money at the time to be spending on a film. Yeah, I mean,
1: so I sort of hinted earlier about the Korean wave. So uh, that film Shiri, which I'm not a huge fan (laughs) of, to be honest with you, but it was a big crossover hit. Um, oh, the lead character is the get lady from Lost, isn't it? Um, I can't remember her name, but the Korean lady on Lost is is the main character in Shiri. But Shiri is a big deal, and again, I think it got a tartan release. It that, did as, to go back to all our. But it was it was a it was a hit, and it facilitated him having this. You know, and you may have said fifteen million dollars equivalent, but that's probably in in the equivalent of one hundred and fifty million dollars in reality compared you know when you think of what actually the cost of uh, a hollywood film is very little but a fraction of its making the film most of its salaries to people and marketing budgets so this is the and so so this is coming at a time 2004 the korean waves in full effect shiri's come over um my sassy girls come over um all those horror movies that we keep talking about mate have come over you've got um, nowhere
0: to hide which i think for many of us uh was our yep. first introduction to korean cinema and it sort of uh, opened absolutely. the doors you have to remember i mean the fact that we can it's not even that long ago i mean it's what in the last 20 years because before that the only two main players in town were sort of like japanese cinema and hong kong cinema um, yeah
1: with a with a with a side hustle of sort of mainland chinese yes exactly. arts
0: and art cinema um and
1: yeah and and then the sort the Korean wave opened it up for Thai cinema for Vietnamese cinema for Indonesian cinema, but you know I would say probably now the the South Korean cinema dwarfs anything else in Southeast Asia I mean obviously we've got in South Asia we've got various markets including Bollywood and stuff but it's yeah, in, in Southeast Asia, it's really the only game in town. Because Japanese cinema's fallen off a cliff, um, and Hong Kong cinema is 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 quite limited now um, because of it being part of the wider China and all those restrictions it has on it. You know, it's not say so, the occasional good film doesn't come out, but it's you know the the days of a film every other week from the Shaw Brothers is long gone, isn't it? <laughs> it's um. <laughs> It's it's yeah so so yeah this this is this is an important film, um, bec- also because it's it's a war film, which is again a genre that take it takes a lot of money to make a war film. You can make a film set in wartime that's different, but actually you know with hundreds of extras and trenches and explosions and CGI and stuff like that, it's it it, it takes a lot of money. Um, so
0: yeah. As we said before, while there are certain conflicts which are certainly more present on the cinematic landscape, there's also those films which are not, don't fall into that category of being like the boy's own adventure or creating a political statement and instead seem purely there to focus on giving the viewer an idea of what it was to be within that conflict. Obviously, World War II, as Spielberg said with Private Ryan, Vietnam has Oliver Stone's platoon. And the Korean War has this film. Um, the film itself follows uh, two brothers who find themselves drafted into the South Korean army when uh, war breaks out between the North and South Korea. Um, a war of ideals, really, because obviously the South Korean being capitalism and the North Korean being communists. And these two brothers uh, just find themselves uh, drafted into this conflict that they had no interest in being part of. They're both... Uh, One's a student uh, and the older brother works as a shoe shine and has aspirations of being a um I'm trying to think of a better term than shoe repair guy. A cobbler.
1: Cobbler, so a cobbler is the trade, yes. yes. Well I think yeah, but I think he wants to be more than a cobbler, doesn't he? I think he wants to you know, a cobbler like repairs shoes. To my mind, I think he wants to be a designer, doesn't he? He wants to make they, shoes. So. They, he looks lustfully at a pair of Italian shoes in a shop window, but you kind of wonder why that shop even exists in the town that they're in. But let's not go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's his that's his thing. But yeah, you're right. He works currently as a shoe shine, and he, you know, he's saving up all the money to get his brother to go to university. And he, bloody, loves his brother, doesn't he? He
0: does. And as fight with. Trying to get his brother out of the army, he comes uh, across this sort of loophole where if he's awarded the Medal of Honor, he could get his brother out of the army, and sets in turn um, a series of events where he basically starts signing up for a series of like suicide missions to try and earn his way up the ranks and earn this Medal of Honor just to get his brother out, um, and uh, this is where the focus of the the film is really and I, I when I would describe this film to people and try to sell it I often call it like the Korean Saving Pride Ryan but I don't think that label really sort of does it justice because this is a far superior film to Saving Private Ryan which has its big opening moment in the D-Day landings and then sort of just becomes a sort of run of the mill war movie even though there are people out there who are going to like start wringing their hands and saying that I'm being so blasphemous to sort of dismiss such an important movie but once that d-day sequence is over it's very forgettable at best that movie so
1: oh i'm no fan of saving private ryan and i keep trying not to say shaving ryan's privates which is a (laughs) which is is the (laughs) other version movie yeah um but um i i don't really like war movies so i could care less about either of them (laughs) But yeah, um, but this this film has been inspired by Saving Private Ryan, hasn't it? I mean, clearly, the the that D Day sequence is what this film tries to do the entire way through the film, <laughs> just with less money and less CGI.
0: Yeah, and certainly when we look at the Korean War, I mean, this was a war based around inner city sort of uh, warfare and a lot of trench warfare in particular, where the South Korean army was often under-equipped, under-supplied, and we see this in sort of all its uh, glory as we see a film which sort of really sort of focuses on this blood and snot style of combat that's made up the majority of the fighting in this war, and it certainly has some very sort of spectacular set pieces with uh, this older brother going on these gung-ho moments, such as when he's like charging a gun nest and inspiring the troops who are uh, being basically starved out by the north korean army to have this sort of like one last hurrah to charge them and it uh has all these wonderful sort of like set pieces and certainly action throughout is shot very phenomenally well it's very exciting and we combine this with these moments of really sort of touching family and the fact that you've got these two brothers who are basically two boys in the countryside there the highlight of their evening is to go out and play in the stream and this is an exciting evening for them so you really puts into a contest when you've got these two guys who have like no interest in the sort of political landscape and then sort of thrust into fighting this war that they had no interest at all and certainly a war based purely on political beliefs um, it just makes a really interesting sort of Comparison really between their lifestyles and them being thrown into this situation.
1: So, can I have a contrary opinion? <laughs> I know you're gonna have a contrary opinion on this. You're gonna just like I was. I was like, so
0: like this is gonna be like a slam dunk for a week. This, this is gonna be like uh, this. This is movie. just like so fantastic. This is gonna be listeners gushing over uh, a movie. Uh, but no, well, I to... so I guess I'm
1: guessing we both sit each other's. Uh, star rating my, my, <laughs> my heart
0: sung when i saw seaman Steven's, Steven's box i was like ah oh, <laughs> this yeah. is going to be a more uh,
1: and so so don't get me wrong i absolutely understand why you like it right cuz it's a visceral experience right it's um and that that aspect of it is really well done the 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 shooting the fighting the trench warfare um the the you know the 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 whole two brothers thing is kind of interesting. Um, But as I've already fessed up and said, I find this kind of war movie just... It's not boring. I really struggle to follow it, right? And this isn't about it being Korean. This is all war movies. But when you've got... And Saving Private Ryan had the same problem. Every war movie has this problem to me. You've got hundreds of blokes, all dressed in the same fucking outfit, covered in blood and muck and shit, (laughs) shouting and bleeding and getting blown up for hours on end, I don't know who anybody is, and I find it tiresome. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a good war movie or a movie set during wartime, just this, this kind of in the trenches kind of thing, I just find really difficult to follow. And in this movie, I've got a bigger problem is that it goes on for two and a half hours, and there's only one story in it. So despite the fact in the first Sort of when they'll get together, we go around a campfire, and all these characters tell us their names and their single dimensional motivations. Like one of them's just there to kill commies. Um, <laughs> and and I don't even know who died. There's the only the only one guy, the uncle guy, um that that's a bit of a fixer is the only one who who really has any storyline to him so nobody in this film other than the two brothers has any existence other than being in the trenches so that's that's my biggest problem with it um so there's a there's a whole thing and it it's a key bit of the movie is that the older brother played by uh jang dong Gum Um, has a fiance who's played by Lee Unju, and you might not remember, but Lee Unju was uh, one of the focuses of one of my dark side of Asian cinema stories. She's the she's the one one of the ones that committed suicide after the, the netizens and her Scarlet Letter film, where she shockingly showed a boob or something, and she was basically heckled to death. But so this is like one of her this is probably the biggest film that she was in, although she's barely in it. Um, and, and so she's sort of introduced in the beginning. She gives her husband or a fiance, I think it is, a, a little bit of cloth to remember and smell her by. And then the next time we see her, she's being accused of all sorts of shit and she gets killed.
0: Well, yeah, she's um, accused <laughs> of being a, a communism because she, yeah, the she, she's, of communist party are luring people in with the promise of free food and the fact that nobody has any food. So yeah, she turns she's, up thinking they're just giving rice for attending a ceremony, but in mm, fact they're branding on these people communists. That's right,
1: and and the southern and it's the southern. I mean, what's interesting about this film is it's the southern Koreans that actually have become corrupt and they just accuse everybody of being communists. And collaborators, and they shoot her, which then drives um, the other brother, the, the older brother, into a ridiculous <laughs> a final th- third act of the film, where he oh, becomes yes, he... he becomes North Korean and a maniac. Um, yeah, I mean, he was already the, the mania had already set in. He'd become addicted to to the suicide missions and things, you know. And, and I don't think it ever, after about the first five minutes, it ever became about getting his brother out of there, and that just don't. That don't. That's not really how war works either, is it? <laughs> you win this medal, you can get one person of your choice out of the army. Um, but yeah, just there's not enough of her and her story. So everything, everything that we hear about is kind of, you know, she gets accused of being a prostitute, doesn't she? And, and, and which really snaps him. And 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 then yeah, just there's just a whole bunch of. There's just no breadth to this film. I just felt it was just really the story of these two guys these two brothers um and i don't think it did enough there's no subplots there's nothing else going on about apart from this so yeah i know i don't i don't want to shit on it because the craft is fantastic right and won bin is great and um uh jang dong gun is great well he's great up until the final act when he just yeah it's just fucking weird what happens in the final act um and I know war is shit. I don't need to be told for two and a half hours <laughs> that it's shit. And yeah, it's just, it's just, it's really immersive, but it's paper thin. And that's my real problem with it. And I hadn't seen this film before. I thought I had, but I hadn't. Um, I've seen his follow up called My Way, which is another war film. I think it stars Fan Bingbing or some one of the top Chinese actresses is in it, which is a much you know there's less war but more well, there's quite a lot of war but there's more um there's more other storylines going on and potentially to its that film's detriment. But yeah, I just but this film did gangbusters. It's like the most expensive Korean movie of the time. I think it it was in, internally it was the biggest ticket sales of any film at the time i'm sure it i'm sure it's still in the top 10 or 20 korean films of sort of success success wise and finance wise as of all time so i i get it it's just not for me um so we're not going to argue about it i think we're just going to agree to differ (laughs) and but there's there's some you know it's not to say there aren't cool moments like you like you say some of the first two thirds of the film is there's some amazing moments especially if you like seeing people's heads get blown up or trying to put people's intestines back in their bodies and stuff like that oh anyway have, have i ruined the show no, no no
0: no i mean this one we on our top 150 cinema this one came in at number five between my sassy girl and my neighbor totoro um and certainly for myself Jang, Jang Dong-Gun uh, brings to mind like the early films of Chow fat and certainly in terms of like levels of charisma and confidence that he brings to his role. And yes, I agree with what you're saying, that the focus is us on these two brothers and everyone becomes sort of like suspicious. They're just interchangeable uh, characters who are just there to provide cannon fodder for the North Korean army for the majority of the film. But at the same time, the seeing the these two brothers who are like on the field the younger brothers there like seeing how fanatical as you said the older brother is becoming that and the older brother is just he's not he never tells the this younger brother what he's planning to do so he's like his mania is sort of like seems all the more present sort of like taken over as he's like getting assigned higher and higher ranks and takes on ever more sort of dangerous missions that the young brother can't understand why he's so willing to put himself in danger and why he doesn't just wait out the war as uh, seemingly he plans to do but as you said already we get into this sort of third act and he thinks his young brother's been killed he certainly his fiance has been killed and he goes to join the Berserker unit of the north korea and leads into this wonderful sort of final showdown where these two brothers reunite in the midst of this heated battle uh on on the hill and i for myself i just sort of like I'd never really sort of thought too much about the other stories that are not being told here, and just sort of enjoyed the set pieces and enjoyed just the relationship between these two brothers and the war that is sort of erupting around them. I never really sort of thought, really thought, or needed any more sort of uh, sort of subplots to that. I thought that everything that was uh, else that was happening in the film was just sort of adding to the immersion of this uh, experience here. So, but. Um, yeah, I. When we got this this bookend where you've got the the brother there and he's an old man and he, they've this um, archaeology team um, think that they found his body, but it's actually his brother's body and he's like been searching for him all these years and yeah, it was it it hit the same emotional notes that same Prior Ryan does. You know how we're bookended by the old man at the start and the end.
1: Ah, yes. So, I think we need some... I did some reading up after it. F- firstly, just as an aside, did you know we've now covered three of the films that One Bin has starred in out of the five he's done in total? <laughs> so, we've nearly completed our One Bin set, and i shocked to find out he's only ever been in, in five films. And I'm pretty certain we are going to do Guns and Talks at one stage, so we're definitely going to get four of the five. Um, but, yes, so... I don't think it's really well explained. I, I, because we're not Korean, it's it's not really understood quite what's going on. So the, what we see in this movie is quite a lot of war crimes. And Kore- uh, do you remember in Peppermint Candy, there's a whole bunch of shitty stuff that goes on, and also Taxi Driver and things like that, where the government do shitty things, or North Koreans do shitty things to South Koreans, and South Koreans do shitty things to north koreans and there's basically there's a whole bunch of like truth and reconciliation um uh what they call like tribunals or something like that where they're meant to sort of lay out all the terrible things we've done and people beg for forgiveness and, and the nation is meant to heal so that's what's going on in those bookends is that the the, the the this this government sort of government stuff is going on where they're uncovering it and they're trying to find out you know who died at this at this fight or something like that, um, and and it's all very actually very political. But yes, so basically they sort of they, they find the body of one of the brothers, but it turns out the brother they think it is is actually still alive. And then it, we find out there's shoes and there's what it. We don't want to spoil it, do we? But one of the brothers survives and one doesn't. Let's just put it that way. But um
0: this is how it opens so yeah it's how it
1: opens and how yeah so it opens we know that one of them's going to die and it just takes us two hours and 15 minutes to find out which one (laughs) and um but yeah this it 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 probably means a lot more to koreans than it would do to us because i don't think you know i don't think we certainly in england have sort of ever done anything like that the, obviously our civil wars far too long ago but there's a lot of shitty things in modern Korean history certainly 20th century Korean history that um, lots of apologies have to be made for.
0: I think when it comes to Britain's relationship with the war it's sort of like we've got this sort of uh, rose-tinted ideal especially when it comes to the Second World War of how it was this battle between good and evil um, and it's sort of like Takes a more form of like the boy's own adventure when you look at like the British war movies and things such as sort of like Bridge Too Far, Battle of Britain, uh, Mosquito Squadron. All yeah, like like 6623
1: Squadron, Dam Busters. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah. all these um, very gung
0: ho adventures. It's not mm. like the hot, it's not like Old Quiet on the Western Front that we're, mm. <laughs> we're putting out, is it? So it,
1: it is, and um, I'm as I've sort of mentioned before, I'm sort of going back through a lot of shows from my childhood, TV shows and films, because I've reached that age when nostalgia is king. And I've um, started watching Auf same Pet, which I don't know if you remember, but yeah. basically it's a story set in the 80s, Thatcher's Britain, all that, um, where some people from, well, some, the famous people are from Newcastle. There's people from all over the country go out to Germany to help rebuild the country effectively during the 80s um, and uh, they go to Dusseldorf which of course we bomb the shit out of and that's part of the, um, in fact one of the storylines is that they find a British bomb um, on on the building site but we don't ever sort of, it's, it's very rare we tell those stories of the shitty things we did um, you know it's, and, and, and we feel very uncomfortable, I think it's very similar when we talk about should we just call them the Troubles, which is the euphemism for for the shitty things we've done in Ireland? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. It's, it's we yeah we and, and and we never really talk about the shitty things we did in India and blah blah blah. Oh yeah, Britain. no, there's there's
0: a lot of like when Britain was basically owning free quarters of the world because you know we bothered to invent a flag and we were like <laughs> rolling up and going going oh no flag no country. Yeah, there was yeah. a lot of that, and I think this is the thing we 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 rag on the americans for basically showing up and claiming america but the same fact that we were pretty much doing the same in other parts of the world Mate,
1: us and the spanish invented that shit anything america does is just copycatism. Yeah, but there is there is a lack of of it, it, it's almost un-british to have a look at yourself and and you know and 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 Think about things like that. Oh yeah, because saying, and I, the British I'm not saying, actually
0: though is like because we've got the monarchy, we've got this this greater uh, royal tradition. It's this got all this uh, like stature and pomp mm. and ceremony about it. Whereas we look at like uh, American, and it's um, a bunch of people trying to find a country to practice a religion free. So it's they just show up somewhere and say mm. "Yep, this is it." <laughs>
1: and I think I think you know. Uh, the recent death of, of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, I think some people tried to try to invoke a bit of introspection around that because, you know, in her reign, that is when the empire disappeared, and 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 you know, there's sort of a, a story around you know she oversaw the end of the British Empire and blah blah blah. But it, it, even even if you're not a rabid right winger and think we rescued. Africa and India from darkness because we gave them machines and the wheel and stuff like that. Even even if you don't think ridiculous shit like that, I just don't think it's in our psyche to think about, you know, to 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 think about crappy things that we've done. Whereas certainly, you know, this this film is, as well as being a war movie, and you know, maybe I'm giving it more credit now. Um, does it doesn't shy away from showing that it. That, although quite often it's just about oh, the bloody commies. Let's kill them all in a very pa- wa- wafer thin way. It's also talking about hang on, look at the shitty things that that South Korea did as well um, to their own people, and we need to think about it. Um, so yeah, that's a very long winded way of saying there is there is there is some stuff. And I just want I just wanted more of it. And I I but I do understand that Korean people would get all this. And all these scenes that we see are actually at famous battles or famous parts of the war. Um, it interestingly barely mentions the Americans who are all over the shop at this time. It's um, I know General MacArthur sort of oversaw the war from um, Japan, but there were lots of Americans. Um, that's that's what MASH is about.
0: <laughs> basically getting them back for the fact that they didn't pan the camera to the right and save Private Ryan. Yeah, like, well, the British forces there Yeah, it? absolutely. The Americans just rolled in <laughs> D-Day and claimed it all <laughs> themselves. That's right. Yeah. War 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 can
1: be like that. War is the um war is the classic part of history, isn't it? Well, that's where, the thing. Where...
0: History is written by the victors it is <laughs> so
1: it all it, it, it always is so this this film is doing something interesting in that space i just wanted a bit more
0: of it yeah you want a little more depth and mm. development and for myself i just want an experience apparently so yeah
1: well and that's okay it's a it's a thrill ride um i just wanted some context and i just but we're you and i probably aren't the audience for this you know i don't th- you know if we were watching a film about i don't know about world war ii we'd understand what dunkirk was we'd understand what d-day was we'd understand various other things yeah whereas maybe somebody from indonesia wouldn't know what the fuck any of this was about in terms of context and timeline and stuff like that whereas this film just sort of trundles along doesn't even give a lot of um context or there's nothing on screen saying
0: 1954 oh no it doesn't place. yeah it doesn't give the opening sort of setting card does it mm. i think it's it's interesting obviously we have this film because it's obviously a conflict that isn't very semantic represented the same as like a lot of the russian afghanistan conflict uh, where you see you things like ninth company that um there's a number of russian movies that that cover that particular war but we obviously don't see covered anywhere else so I think it's always interesting when you have these uh, foreign films that obviously cover these sort of lesser discussed uh, conflicts I mean we when we did um, the legend the classic the classic and we were surprised to find out which countries uh, were in Vietnam.
1: Mm, absolutely. I didn't know though I didn't know there were Korean people no, in the Vietnam War. We yeah. assume that um,
0: the Vietnam War was a war between America and Vietnam, not the fact that the Russians were there first and the French were also there. We forget there's a number of other parties that were also involved in that war. Uh so yeah. I for myself as I said, I still think it's it's a phenomenal film and one that's well worth checking out. Um Stephen obviously you beg to differ. Um so well,
1: Well, when you when you listed where it was in our top 150, it's 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 firmly between two of my choices. (laughs) So I can see that it was there for yours. And I I get it. I do get it. I get why people like this film and I get why it's an important film. It's just not for me. And that happens sometimes. No more war movies, please.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And on that note it brings to the end of tonight's episode thank you as always for listening if you haven't done already please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us and leave us a review let us know what you think of uh, the show what do you think of uh, tonight's film let us know you can uh, also get in touch with us on facebook and instagram and twitter come say hi to us there or you can check out our blog which is asian silver film um, but Stephen, it is your turn to choose next and what would you like to choose for our ninety-ninth episode? Well,
1: yes. Obviously no pressure. 100, 100 is there. And we've got plans for that. We do. Um But I th- and and we had a chat a couple of couple of recordings ago off air where you sort of told me a whole bunch of films that uh, you you sort of had on your list and well, I think it's when we were, I can't remember what we,
0: why, why it came up. Anyway, you mentioned a film. You mentioned, film, 4, We men- were talking about it, so.
1: Yeah. And, and, um, I, yeah, you mentioned a couple of movies which I'm desperate to bring to the show. And I've been desperate, one in particular, I've been wanting to bring to the show since about episode four, right? So that, that I just keep saying, oh, no, now's not the right time. Now's not the right <laughs> time. Um, it's another South Korean movie. And um, it stars at least one person that's that, that we've had in multiple episodes, so it's, it's it's going to be quite familiar. But I've got to choose Memories of Murder because a I really want to watch it again, <laughs> and I want to make it worthwhile. But I honestly think it's one of the greatest films um, of South, in South Korean cinema. So yeah, I think that's worthy of number ninety nine. Hopefully, you do too.
0: Be a first time watch for myself, so oh, I'm so jealous. I get to experience it for the first time. Uh, luckily, recently it's uh, been shown over here on Film Four, who also at the time of recording had it on their on demand service. All four, along with uh, Barking Dogs Never Bite, which I've also got to watch. So,
1: yeah, another another same same director, I think. Yep, same um, director. Yeah,
0: so uh, we obviously got that to talk about on the next episode it was either that or i saw the devil but i which is also on my list as well so I <laughs> yeah i know it.
1: i know i thought oh, i'll I've, I've got to let him keep one of them <laughs> but, but I, on, honestly it's every time we talk about it i think oh now's not the right time but i think episode 99 is is almost a celebration
0: within itself so i'm taking it fantastic so that's obviously coming up on our next episode but until then thank you for listening thanks to my co it's a pleasure. And we'll be back next time to talk about memories of murder. Until then, good night. Hey! 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 Kino no kofi wa wasurete Kino no ano ko wa wasurete Odori tuzukete itai
1: Ja Lynanassa,